0: Hello, everyone. This is Ryan Tripp, returning to the Native American Studies channel for the New Books Network. On today's show, we have Professor Matthew Restall. He is the Edwin Earl Sparks Professor of Latin American History and Director of Latin American Studies at Pennsylvania State University. He is President of the American Society for Ethnohistory and has held numerous fellowships across multiple institutions as well. We're here today to discuss his new study, When Montezuma Met Cortez, The True Story of the Meeting That Changed History. Welcome, Professor Westall.
1: Hello, Ryan. Thank you for having me on the show.
0: As we usually do on the show, I'd like to ask you a little bit about uh, your cover selection. Can you talk a little bit about the cover, what it's derived from, and um, perhaps who who, what decision making went into to the selection of the, of, uh, of the
1: image? The press came up with the image, uh, and it was a real pleasure working with this press. It was the first time I had worked with a a completely commercial press. Echo as part of Harper Collins, and uh, they have a a team of professionals who work on. These matters, but of course they ran the image by me to see what I thought, and I thought it was beautiful. Um, it potentially, but only potentially, might mislead uh, the casual reader and picking it up, thinking, oh, this is supposed to be an accurate depiction of when Montezuma met Cortez, and of course it isn't. Uh, it, it, But I think as soon as anyone picking up the book starts to get into the book, they can see that part of what the book is about is the history over the last 500 years since this meeting took place of all the different ways in which it's been represented in text and in image. Uh, and then that allows the, the, the cover image to sort of slot into the, the, that array of, of source material.
0: So, Professor Restall... Uh, let's just dive into the questions. How did you approach the history of this meeting and the ensuing Aztec-Spanish War, particularly with a comparative perspective absent in the work of previous scholars such as Inga Clendon? Can you also discuss what categories of uh, sources you use to substantiate your arguments?
1: Yes, um, the, the, the the good news about the good news for anyone approaching this topic. Uh, Traditionally, it's called the Conquest of Mexico. So the good news anyone approaching it is that uh, source material is enormous. There's a massive amount of primary and secondary source material uh, of all kinds. So uh, a great deal of documentation beginning in the 16th century itself and uh, an enormous pile of books and articles. Uh but the flip side to that, of course, is that it's almost impossible to to master that literature um that uh, as hard as you try, there's always something that 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 you miss and someone picking up my book will see there's about hundred and thirty pages of end notes and bibliography at the back um uh, which looks as if I pretty much covered everything, but I, even after the book came out, I kept coming across other other sources, um, which would suggest that approaching the topic and, and trying to write a new book that says something new uh, is probably a pretty foolhardy enterprise. Um, and sometimes people ask me why. They, they ask me politely, but essentially they say, why did you set out to do something so stupid? Um, and my my response to that is, well, it's a little complicated, but um, one with so many projects like this, one sets out to write one book and then it evolves and it evolves and evolves. And it started out being a, a shorter book comparing Montezuma and Cortez and focusing just on the day when they met um, in November of 1519. Uh, and then, as I started to get into this source material, and here i 'm beginning to answer your question a little bit more directly, I realized that uh it was the primary source material is not just extensive in the sixteenth century there isn 't just great material that is uh, readily available that has been used by other people and therefore easy to track down uh, but that this meeting has a history. That has continued for the last 500 years, meaning that there is source material that other people didn't think to look at um, because it dates from a century later, two centuries, three centuries, four centuries, and seems to just perhaps repeat what came before or doesn't add anything new or adds things which aren't true. Uh, And no one else had occurred to them to think about, say, uh, Italian operas um, of the early 19th century about the subject as somehow telling us something about what happened. And that was when I realized that I could say something new about what happened Uh, simply by arguing that our understanding of it in the 20th century, in the 21st century, has been massively distorted by all of this clutter in image and in text that has happened in the last 500 years. And that it's not just a question of jumping over that clutter. It's a question of delving right into it and really understanding it and seeing how this story has built up in layers and layers that we can then strip those down.
0: Can you elaborate as well on your suggestion that historians should shift conceptions of Hernán Cortés' expeditionary role in three ways? Quoting your book, uh, first, the Cortés-Varésquez feud, second, the role played by cohort and faction, and third, the nature of the Spanish political system. Yes,
1: one of the the challenges of writing um, this book was to try to put Cortez into better perspective. And uh, there's a a sort of an irony to writing a book that argues that Cortez is less important than he's been seen. Um, And yet there's his name on the front cover on the title of the book that he's standing there. He appears more than anybody else in the book. Um, So it, it, in a way, it's a book about Cortez that, over and over keeps claiming that it's not a book about Cortez. Um, So what that meant was I I was challenging myself to persuade the reader, not just to see him as say a bad guy, not a good guy, not just to see him as, as unlikable, not, not, not categories that obvious, but to see how he simply is less important that he's, you like the guy who's there in the room the whole time but he's not really guiding him controlling everything um so one of the the ways in which i tried to do that was to uh sort of fill the gaps or the vacuum that is left by um, moving him onto the margins and out of the away from the center um and the section that you're referring to is uh, where I argue that we might see a kind of triangle. Uh, and each of the three points of the that, that triangle uh, represent ways in which Spaniards interacted, the nature of their political and social relationships during this story. And of course, what that does is introduce a lot of other characters. Uh, and all of those characters can be seen Moving in groups back and forth against each other, or uh, with each other, and as a result, Cortez kind of recedes a little bit. So one of them is the the decades long feud between Cortez and Diego Velázquez, who was the governor of Cuba, who traditionally is seen as sort of the loser who's outwitted by Cortez, uh, and here I argue that it's a little bit more complicated than that. And uh, if we imagine Cortez constantly struggling against Velázquez and his allies, not just during their lifetimes, but even after they're both dead, um, then that uh, reduces the level of w- in which Cortez is, uh, is in control or a or perception of him as in control. And one of the other points of the triangle is a is a, A point about cohort and faction more generally and how we can use conquistador records to identify the ways in which conquistadors saw themselves as part of cohorts determined by kinship and hometown of origin and experiences that they'd had fighting side by side in groups in the caribbean uh and that essentially kind of gives agency to those to those groups and those captains instead of seeing the conquest of mexico as uh an invasion in which Cortez is the glorious leader, and then there's just everybody else. Uh, what I wanted to do was to try to show how we have to see the conquistadors as comprising all of these various cohorts and factions that are constantly jostling against each other and not in a clear hierarchy at all.
0: You contend as well that the tragic mess, quoting you, that was the destruction of old Tenochtitlan resulted not from the tidy sequence of triumphal moments that marks the traditional narrative, but from the complexity that was the Spanish-Aztec War and the combined mess of its many histories and images. But you also contend that the traditional narrative of the conquest of Mexico, as well as the traditional portraits of Cortes and Montezuma, effectively stem from that account, the traditional narrative of the meeting between Montezuma and Cortes. Uh, Can you touch on how... Rethinking the meeting might also rethink its protagonists in the evasion war, including the flaying of men festival.
1: Yes. There's a, a metaphor here that I don't use uh, much. I'm not, actually, I'm not sure I use it at all in the book. Um, I sort of saved it for talking about the book um, in settings like this. Uh, and that is a domino effect. It's a bit of a, a kind of a corny cliched metaphor but um it's it's useful in a kind of informal chatter of this of the subject so the idea here is that 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 day when the two men meet for the first time cortez and montezuma outside the city um is the central domino, not not at the end of a line, but right in the middle. You've probably seen those dominoes laid out where they kind of go in a spiral, that kind of thing, or going off in multiple directions. And as I was investigating and researching that meeting and thinking about the different accounts of it and the implications of the Spanish claim that at that meeting Montezuma simply surrendered his empire. Uh, subsequently he was then taken, um, into custody. He was captive and the Spaniards then ruled the empire through him for the next six months. And then there was a rebellion that they had to then put down that, that, that kind of conventional story that if you go back to the day they met and tell that story differently and assume that in fact, Montezuma did not surrender that he simply welcomed Cortez. Everything else that comes after that has to be different. Everything else that comes after that doesn't make sense in the the Spanish telling. Um, And so the domino, as it's knocked over, starts to knock all the others, and they go out in every direction, and not just forward in time, but also back in time as well. And it changes how we see the entire... War from the moment when Spaniards are first landing on the coast of Mexico before they even know about the Aztec Empire, when they're first sort of hearing bits and pieces of information, they're learning of it, all the way through to the 1520s when this war of conquest that's supposed to have ended, in fact, is continuing out across uh, Mesoamerica, across what is today Mexico and parts of Central America. that that this is kind of the linchpin and um that's why i made the meeting the center of the story uh it wasn't that i wanted to write about that day and therefore i was going to kind of twist everything to fit it it was i realized that in the end uh that was the central domino and that the way to guide readers in was to have that at the very cover have that on the title and subtitle and use that as my entry point and, and say, this is a lie. This lie has been going on for 500 years. Um, I'm going to convince you that it's a lie. And then I'm going to try to convince you what really happened, uh, or at least get you to think about possibilities of what else may have happened. Uh, and then I'm going to try to explain to you why the lie lasted for so long and you mentioned the flaying of men festival that's that's a little twist in there that sometimes um people jump over and they ask they 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 jump over and they don't spot it or if they do they say what what did you put that in for um the flaying of men festival is relevant for a couple of reasons one is i do try to convince Readers to see the Aztecs and Aztec civilization differently from how traditionally been seen. Uh, this is not new to Aztec scholars. Uh, academics who study the Aztecs have for a long time been writing books and doing great work, um, presenting the field with very sophisticated understandings of the beauty of Aztec poetry and art and the complexity of Aztec social life and so on. But that work doesn't get out to a larger audience because the larger audience is fed images of human sacrifice and cannibalism and violence. And, and I have argued in the book that that's a problem we have to get over in order to understand this story better. So I do say some sort of Flattering things about the Aztecs and kind of downplay um, other aspects of their of their civilization. So it seemed to me, in order to make sure that my argument was strong, that I didn't completely ignore something like the Flaying of Men Festival, um, which is uh, a festival that took place once a year when captive warriors who've been brought back into the capital city of Tenochtitlan, Um, were executed and then flayed and then their skins were worn by the Aztec warriors who had captured them. And they run around the festival going knocking on people's doors and being given uh, prizes and and things like that. And I described the the festival. Um, So that is there as a little bit of a corrective. And that's one reason. The other reason is a suggestion that I put out there that um, somebody can, can run with or or not it's sort of a, a discussion point and that is just to point out the timing of when the flaying of men festival took place uh because according to the spaniards at this point they claim to be in control of the city uh in fact when you look at the evidence that's ludicrous uh, there's only a couple of hundred Spaniards in the city, and it appears to be fully functioning uh, and under the control of, of Montezuma and his regime. Um, on the other hand, the flaming of Men festival is a is a a, a, a ritual celebration of of captives, um, and it it fell right at the point when whatever kind of detente there was. Uh, within the city of Tenochtitlan, whether uh, I'm wrong and the Spaniards were in control or I'm right and the Aztecs were in control, when that broke down and there was violence. And so I raised the possibility that, in fact, Spa- uh, the, 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 if not Montezuma, then other uh, nobles and members of the royal family um, who were part of his, his inner circle uh, had a plan to fall upon the conquistadors, um, and incorporate their their killing into the Flaying of Men Festival. Uh, I don't know whether that's correct or not, but I thought it was an interesting idea that I hope that Aztec specialists kind of think about that and and uh, debate how how, posi- how close that may be to something that helps us to better understand these months or not.
0: In the introduction to the fourth chapter... You include a map of the Aztec capital of Tenochtitlan, uh, which was printed in the 1524 Latin edition of Cortez's second letter, published in Nuremberg, as well as the 1525 Venetian edition of the same map. How is this map hybrid in style and content, as you argue? And how does Montezuma's complex of palaces, gardens, and zoos serve as the key that unlocks a new way of looking at the emperor, his empire, and his response to the arrival of the Yeah, empire? this
1: is this this is it's a beautiful map. I think it's uh, a real cartographic treasure, um, and anyone who's interested in old maps in uh, indigenous cartography. Anything that relates to that, I would encourage them to take a look at the map as as it's reproduced in my book and then track down some of the studies of it uh, and they have this I cite uh, a set of important articles that are very easily accessible and written by skilled art historians who specialize in this kind of thing um, and discuss the contents of the map in detail and um These scholars, Elizabeth Boone, Barbara Mundy, and others have argued that the map could not simply have been uh, created by a European engraver. It does not look like any other map uh, ever made in Europe. I mean, it has many elements that uh, compare to those maps, but there is no map quite exactly like it, that it has elements in it that we can trace or that specialists in indigenous cartography particularly Aztec cartography um or nahua cartography can trace to uh an an indigenous uh mapmaker of some kind so um first the, the sort of the, i suppose i should back up and say if you've seen this map in say a world history textbook contributed to cortez you should know how ridiculous that is um, and, 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 you know, put that aside, um, and, and, and think about some of these other studies that suggest the following, um, Montezuma, uh, Montezuma sorry, not Montezuma, Cortez, uh, acquired, uh, from Montezuma's library or asked, uh, 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 surviving Aztec or Mexica scribe to draw a map of the city. And that map was then sent with that particular letter um, that was written in 1520 when it was when it was sent back to um was sent to Spain. And when the letter was then set to be printed, uh that map of course could not be exactly reproduced, right? There was no technology to exactly reproduce a hand drawn map. So the engraver set about reproducing it and uh, inevitably changed things. So it kind of made sense to him and added some details that he could only have got from reading the letter. Uh, But there are also other details in there that aren't in the letter. Um, So he must've got those from, from the original map. So, you can imagine um, a German engraver um, who is able to read the and understand the Spanish text, um, reading the reading Cortez's letter which describes the city, looking at this Aztec map which is going to look very weird and strange to him. Men uh, trying to kind of fold the two in in order to create the map that emerges, and there's just simply no other map like it. Um, in the world. And it, there's many different little elements in there that have been picked up on by by scholars and, and can be um, used to make arguments of various kinds. The one element or detail in there that I pick up on that I thought was really fascinating, and I, I, I did have a kind of um, eureka moment when I, when I saw this. I was just looking in great detail at the map um, by using digital technology to be able to zoom in, um, as well as looking at actual original 1524 copies of it that are in the John Carter Brown Library in Providence. And they noticed how many different compounds there were that uh, kept where birds and animals, in other words, his zoos. Um, and the location of those compounds and the location of key moments in the war the map is obviously not accurate in any modern sense in any 21st century sense and nor would we ever expect you know a map from this era to be regardless of what culture it's from but uh that prompted me to then think about what the city was like and where people were and what they were doing. And, uh, you know, one thought led to another. And then I realized, Oh, I see. Uh, Montezuma sees the Spaniards in terms of all the other people and living things that come into his city that represent his empire in some way, uh, that, are. that are are part of his collections for him to study. Uh, And that's what led to one of the key arguments in the book, which is that Montezuma is a collector and he's in some sense collecting the Spaniards. I don't mean that he literally thinks that they can be zoo animals, that they can be put in cages, but um, in in, uh, sort of categorical terms, that's what he's trying to do.
0: What is the significance on a related note of the disjuncture between the early modern and modern Montezuma? That is, uh, Montezuma the Monster, the Magnificent and the Fearful categories that you use in your book, and the Montezuma that died in fifteen twenty.
1: Yeah. M- Montezuma's an interesting character. I I um found I, I assumed when I was doing this research that uh in all the literature, I would find a fairly well-developed portrait and understanding of of, of Montezuma. There are entire books have been written on him, uh, novels, books by anthropologists, historians, and French, Spanish, English, and so on. And I discovered—I don't know why—I was surprised by this, but to my surprise that. There isn't really any one in Montezuma. There are many, many, many different Montezumas. And pretty much all of them have been invented over the last 500 years. Um, that he's sort of a, a blank upon which people can then um, impose, uh, paint, describe, whatever they want, whatever their purpose was. And so I thought, how am I going to convey that? to the reader in a way that people can follow. Um, and so I did that by creating these categories uh, and gave them names. <laughs> and They started out as really being markers in my manuscript and I wasn't sure if I was going to keep them. Um, and they were more than the ones that you just named here, the monster, the magnificent, the fearful. Uh, and they sort of changed and merged as I, as I wrote them out and went through more and more of the literature. So those those are really ways for the reader to see how um, sort of a complex evolution over 500 years of a completely invented Aztec emperor. Um, the, that complex evolution resulted in these Kind of personalities. So, who was the real Montezuma? Uh, what was he really like? Well, he wasn't any of those, right? So, he, we still there's still a sort of something of a mystery that is there. Um, but again, what I, for consistency, I, I I sort of fell back on my argument that let's see the meeting of November 1519 not as a surrender, but as a welcome. If Montezuma is welcoming Cortez, if he's been tracking him all the way, and then we allow those dominoes all to fall down in that direction so that the events that happen before and after logically all make sense and the welcome makes sense, how does that change how we see Montezuma? And what emerges then is actually a, a, a not very detailed or elaborate but perfectly logical sensible portrait of the man who you would expect to be at the heart of an empire like this this is he he's um he'll he, he been ruling the empire uh for a while it's continually been expanding um he's authoritarian, uh if he was any of the things that he'd been accused of being, particularly the most obvious one of being sort of lily livered and cowardly and uncertain of what he was doing and so on, he would no longer have been emperor by the time the Spaniards arrived. Uh and so it, it, it allows us to make much better sense of of all of these events, um leading up to to his death, of course, and then once we get into fifteen twenty, things things change. Uh, but that, I hope that just the, that one chapter there on Montezuma, which it does in no way, I wouldn't claim that chapter as a substitute for all the other work that's been done on Montezuma. But I hope that it is enough to sort of push people to think differently about him.
0: You further argue that in order to advance a legalistic claim of possession after the meeting. Cortes narrated the arrest and capture of Montezuma, uh, the subsequent surrender speech by the Aztec, Aztec emperor as well, and the love quotes, <laughs> between Cortez and Montezuma, especially a dying Montezuma. Please elucidate, if you can, the three branches of this Fui captivity tree and explain why the Spanish didn't, quote quoting you, denounce the lie later on when for example some gave testimony during the cortez's uh the residencia investigation that was critical of him
1: yeah that this is a great question and um this just came up i was talking in 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 in, in bristol i think it was at the university of bristol um last week where this question came up and in fact i'm going to let me restate that question the way that it came to me from a uh, a, a, a student there who said um, something like hang on a minute uh, if Montezuma is not a prisoner for four, five, six months um, and Cortez and other Spaniards wrote afterwards that he was surely at some point it would have leaked out that the, the the problem mm-hmm. i have with this argument the students is it seems sort of like a um a sort of conspiracy theory that everybody is all in some kind of conspiracy together and it doesn't it that just seems too unlikely and i said well okay you're right the way you put it like that it does seem like a conspiracy theory and uh i had to p- ponder that question myself And confront it sort of head on, Uh, and and I was willing as I looked through the evidence to, um, you know, discover that maybe I was wrong. Perhaps I would find in in the archives in Spain when I went through the accounts by well the not so much accounts but the questionnaires, the questions that were given to all the conquistadors during these years in this investigation into Cortez's activities. I thought I would. Perhaps find in there um, something that would cause me to have to change what I was trying to argue. That maybe, again and again, they would say, "Yep, we all agree. This is exactly the week or the month when this is when Montezuma was arrested. This is when it happened, and so on." Well, in fact, on the contrary, my my suspicion that he was not taken captive until war broke out in May. In other words, the Spaniards claimed it was, Cortes said it was around November, perhaps December. My suspicion it wasn't until May, uh, my my belief that those other scholars who had made that argument, you know, in a footnote here, an article there and so on, that they were convinced and that I thought they made persuasive points, um, was totally confirmed, absolutely confirmed. Um, And... This is a couple of reasons why. One is I realized that the way that the story is presented as Cortes coming with 400 conquistadors who then topple this empire of millions and it's this kind of amazing achievement and so on, gives the impression that at the end of the war, you've got 400 guys who were in this city for six months. And they could not possibly have been part of some kind of conspiracy. But I realized from all the time I spent looking at the specific individuals and when they came over and when they died, that in fact, there was maybe a few dozen who were in T- Tenochtitlan during those six months and still alive at the end of the war in order to give some kind of um, uh, testimony and the... Uh, in the investigation and in fact even less than that i could only find about uh, i wasn't i wasn't sure because because of the nature of the documentation but less than 20 men who actually gave any kind of official uh testimony um so if there's some kind of a conspiracy now all of a sudden we go from you know 400 men down to about 20 that's the first thing. Secondly, I did find important people who said in writing, of course, he wasn't taken captive. But they were all people who were not invested in the story. Some of them weren't there. Uh, People, famous people like um, Bartolome de las Casas, famous Dominican friar who later wrote in Latin, not in something that was published in his lifetime, but he wrote in Latin how it was really obvious to him that it never happened. He confronted Cortez in person, Cortez just laughed it off uh that the you know, other Spaniards around Cortez laughed as well, like you know as if this was sort of not a conspiracy, but yeah, of course, we didn't take him captive, of course, he didn't surrender to us, but hey, here we are in Mexico City and he's dead." Um, That kind of uh, a blithe, casual way of laughing at how um, the truth had been distorted and no one had any particular reason to make any kind of a fuss about it now. Um, Duran is a a source that uh, is well known to scholars of um, Mexico, also a friar writing um, a generation or two later who said, Um, That when he'd talk to uh, uh, veteran conquistadors or the next generation after them, he couldn't find anybody who could say, yeah, yeah, that's right. Um, I was there in the city during those months and and Montezuma was in chains the whole time when Duran would say, but we have descriptions of Montezuma going hunting, walking freely around the city and so on. And he never seems to be um, actually a captive. Uh, and he could not find any Spaniard who would confirm that. Um, I thought, okay, I'm still not totally convinced. So this is all kind of circumstantial evidence. What are the Spaniards who give testimony actually really saying? And I, I won't go on about this anymore, That just to say one little key point that really I found really fascinating um, is that one after the other, they all claimed to have been Montezuma's guard. And for me, that was kind of the clincher. I realized, okay, this is this is a way to get rewards. This is a way to make yourself seem more important than you really were. Um, each one claims not that he was a, but he was the god. He was the key guy. I, I, I was the emperors, the Aztec emperors, uh, jail keeper, and we had a relationship. And uh, they would tell stories about that. Oh, he gave me pieces of gold and things like that so here we have not a conspiracy of men who are all agreeing to keep a lie um but a motivation of each one individually and very few in number who had survived to tell the story to claim that they were the ones who who were his god they were the ones who were close to him and in truth they weren't and some of them probably barely even had a chance to see him or have, or have anything to do with him because they were the ones who were actually under house arrest in this palace and Montezuma was over in you know in the other palace
0: you've already alluded to uh your refocus on a captain's cohort rather than uh, solely cortez more than alluded you explain that um can you please discuss different other different narrative strategies to reconstruct the spanish aztec war from periodization uh, to the uh, coincidental Tetzoko succession dispute to the uh, Tlatelwani issues or the perspectives of inhabitants of Tenochtitlan Tlatlaco.
1: Yes, I I uh, I have talked a little bit about this um, earlier, and I think not to re- not to repeat, but just to emphasize that. Um, as you say, by by moving by shunting Cortez aside, he takes up so much space in the traditional narrative. He's so important and in such control that if we move him aside, or even perhaps move him too far out of the way, so in other words, what I'm saying is, in reality, he he played a role in all of this. But let's just for the sake of argument sort of remove him completely and see who else there is and and who logically sort of steps into that hole and allows us to actually make better sense of the war. I mean that 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 for me is the key thing that we're not creating um alternative narratives that don't really make sense. They we may be creating ones that are more complicated, that aren't neat and tidy. Uh, But we want to create ones that actually explain details that don't really quite add up in the traditional narrative. So the war, the the second half of the war from the summer of 1520 to the summer of 1521 um, is supposed to be a period in which Cortez brilliantly builds this alliance of Allies and systematically dismantles the Aztec Empire, so that the 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 Mexica at the heart of the Empire tenochtitlan is surrounded and eventually literally surrounded as as the city is besieged. Um, but that takes a long time, and references in the traditional literature to the the speed of the war, how uh, you know the conquistadors come in and. Uh, So quickly they destroy or or defeat this huge empire. Uh, Never justify that time reference of calling a a two-and-a-half-year invasion war quick. Um, There's no kind of consensus on what a short or long war is. It really makes absolutely no sense to call it short or long uh, unless one is – focusing on particular moments and trying to better understand the sequence of events. And I would argue that that year from the summer of 1520 to 21 is a very long, messy, brutal year in which um, the, the the sequence of events do not indicate or reflect a single man in charge, building an alliance that then destroys the empire. It only makes sense if you see it as uh, multiple groups jostling for power with competing agendas. And once you establish that, sure enough, there you find those groups and there you find those agendas very clearly. And they allow... Other captains, other Spanish captains, and their cohorts to to emerge as, as playing important roles, and also indigenous ones. Um, they give a little bit more room to the Tlaxcalans, who were the traditional enemies of the Aztecs, who were not just simply uh, passive allies of the Spaniards, but were playing an active role in all of this to try to permanently carve out a, a larger. Uh, area, territory of independence. And also, to my mind, um, the most important key character who is barely mentioned, if mentioned at all, in the traditional accounts of all of this. Um, and that is ishil um, Zocitl. So, let me explain very briefly who he was. Uh, there's been great work done on his hometown of Tetsukoko. Uh And the things that I'm going to tell you uh, have, can be found in other recent books and articles by scholars of, of Um I'm just hoping that now Ishkin Jochit gets placed more at the center of events. Um, so as you said in your question, I think you used the word coincidentally. Um, it is coincidental. Just a few years before Spaniards appear on the coast, the Tlatoani, or the ruler, we can... I think it's okay to call him king. The king of Texcoco dies. Texcoco is the number two... Situation. It's the same size as Tenochtitlan. Looks a lot like Tenochtitlan. Um, is sometimes talked about as being uh as important um some people not that at the time but nowadays talk about the aztec empire as a triple alliance with tenochtitlan as sort of number one and tuscoco as number two let's not worry about the third city for now um so the king of that city dies and he has three he has many sons perhaps as many as a hundred sons but but um Three of his sons emerge as the most likely candidates to replace him. If Montezuma had not been the strong uh, controlling ruler that I'm claiming he was, if he wasn't really in charge, um, the succession dispute might have been a tro- might have been a problem for him, but he seems to be uh, he seems to very cleverly manipulate or be uh, playing a key role in what happens which is that the three sons uh, divide up Tetsukoko territory, one in the north, one in the city itself, and one to the south, so that there is no civil war. The empire is not threatened. Um, Tetsukoko power is Diluted a little bit, so that um, if anyone is the is the winner of the succession dispute at that moment, it's Montezuma, um, who's still the great king or the emperor, the Huey Tlatoani in Tenochtitlan. One of those three sons is Ixchigozotl, and he is to the north. Then the first year of the war happens and I won't go into the details of how this affects what happens in Texcoco, but by the end of that first year, uh, by which time Montezuma is dead, uh, the other two brothers are also dead. Ishti Zocidli emerges as the survivor and is able to take control of all of Texcoco, So he is able to use the occasion of the invasion and the war to finally resolve the succession dispute so that he's in charge. At which point, according to the traditional Spanish account, um, Cortes either defeats Tetzcoco with they don't put up any resistance, um, he convinces him to be an ally of his different Spanish accounts, Play this in different ways, but they always play it as um, the leader and the, the ruler, and people of Texcoco play, playing a passive role. I think if you see Ishi Zochitl as being playing a central controlling role and making Tezcoco uh, as the center of the war, um, you can see how his concern is not only to shore up his own position in the city. And 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 throughout the territory, so to claim his his birthright as successor to his father, but to permanently tip the balance within the empire, so that the new Aztec Empire has Texcoco as the number one city, and Tenochtitlan as the number two city. And at the end of the second year of the war, the war that we're supposed to believe as being. The end of the conquest of Mexico. Here, the Spaniards are triumphant. I think it's really useful to see Ixchilzotzil as being the victor, that he got what he wanted. Tenochtitlan has been defeated. Uh, the The ruler, the Tlatoani of, um, of Tenochtitlan, is is a captive, and where is he? He's ruling his city. He's confirmed in his position. As ruler and continues to rule through the 1520s until he dies of a of a natural death, and the rulerships gets passed on through his family through the rest of the 16th century. Uh, the royal family in Tenochtitlan survive as well, but arguably not to the same degree. It's, I, I, I think there's plenty of evidence, and scholars who've studied Texcoco have recently made these arguments. Um, it's a great recent book by someone called Brad Benton, um, who does a nice job of doing this. Um, have argued that if we look at the war from the Ishchil perspective, it, it looks very different, and it and it makes a lot of a lot of sense. So that's I, I talked in in some detail. I don't know if people can follow. I hope it's more it's easier to follow in the book, but that's one way of looking at it. Um, and is perfectly compatible with other ways as well. That we we can kind of move our um, our focal point around the valley and look at a particular Spanish captain or group of captains. We can look at Ishchi Zochitlant at We can look at the surviving Mexica um, in Tenochtitlan and see that from their viewpoint. Uh, the war looks very different, and it still makes perfect sense, and we don't need Cortez. We can remove him as um, as being the hero and the controller of everything.
0: During the war, what role did interpreters such as Maritzen play, uh, particularly with communities such as the Totonic? Um That's the first part of the question. And the second part of this final question is, how and why did the death or murder of Cortez's wife after the war as well as his relations with Montezuma's daughters, eclipsed the post-war role of Melitzen, this, quote, Indian slave girl with a knack for language. Um, in, the, uh, in your response, if possible, the second part, please elaborate on passing comments in Spanish sources on sexual slavery in this post-war period.
1: Yeah, this is a, um, a theme in my book that I think is very important, and it comes near the end of the book um partly because i felt as if uh, i needed to get through so much of the material to persuade people to see the conquest of mexico as uh as a war as the spanish aztec war or the aztec spanish war um not as the conquest of mexico uh before i could introduce this theme and you know, because once a book is published and out, one always has uh, second thoughts about things. And I have wondered if uh, people will get to this in the final chapter because it's really important and maybe I should have uh, foregrounded it more. So I do hope that other scholars pick up this ball and run with it. Uh, the ball I'm really referring to, the theme I'm referring to, is uh, the trafficking in indigenous young women really girls children um as slaves and as sex slaves during and after the war and i think it's a theme that has been buried um largely because uh, people just simply didn't know about it because of course the spaniards didn't talk about it very much not openly um and when people have come across it perhaps this has kind of made them uncomfortable uh the traditional narrative is much more fun right um it's much it, the the idea of that malin scene or malinche um enters into a romance with cortez uh and she has a child by him uh she rises in stature in, and in status considerably during the war because she plays this crucial role as, a, as an interpreter. Uh, that's much more appealing that makes for a great story. So I'm afraid that in the the, the movies and uh mini series that will come out in the coming years um to try to take advantage of the five hundred year anniversary of this story uh are going to foreground that that story. The stat, that, that story, the, the romance, is a complete invention. It's an invention of the, not surprisingly, the romantic period um, of the late 18th, early 19th century. It's a round of going back, one can find the kind of the beginnings of it a little bit in the 17th century. Um, but it it really is does not exist in the 16th century at all. Um, so it's a later and it 's a later invention it doesn't exist in the sixteenth century because that was the time when um, it would have made no sense because that was the era when there were um, thousands tens of thousands, probably hundreds of thousands of people like her um, who were less lucky um, but who were sold into slavery uh, and were captured during the war or after, uh, became sex slaves and then domestic servants or slaves who worked on estates and in houses and so on. Um, and I, 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 I offer a few little pieces of evidence of this. I think um, there's probably room there for somebody to write an entire study uh, by digging into the, the evidence, even if some of it is... As a a little bit circumstantial. I'll just give you one example of a piece of evidence that's just been kind of sitting under our noses the whole time. The most famous account by any conquistador of this war is by Bernal Diaz. Uh, I think it's probably more widely read and better known even than the letters of Cortez himself. Bernal Diaz uh, is often referred to as a, a foot soldier in the war. It's not an accurate category. Uh soldier is a term that came in much later. But he was uh one of the Spanish settlers and conquistadors who did fight in the wars um in Mexico and in in Guatemala. Um and his account was published uh not until sixteen thirty two and it was written later in the in the sixteenth century. It's a huge monstrous manuscript, it's very long. Uh, that second half of it is mo- was mostly not published then or since. So if somebody listening to this says, yeah, I know that book. I I read that in, in class or in school. I have a Penguin edition right here. That edition, like most editions, ends with the fall of Tenochtitlan. But Bernal Diaz um, carried on uh, writing uh, all the way through. He wrote about um aspects of the war through the 1520s, 30s, and, and 40s and on up there. And way deep down into the unpublished part of the book, uh, or seldom published part of the book, is it a very short chapter on why we enslaved indigenous people, why we took so many Indian slaves. Uh, and it's very short, it's a total eye-opener. And he lays out in very bold terms the simple fact that uh, because Montezuma surrendered to Cortez, of course, I've argued that wasn't the case, but people wanted to believe it was true. And here we have a good example of someone wanting to believe it was true. Because Montezuma surrendered to Cortes, all the fighting that took place was a rebellion by Aztecs. And the king allowed us to take slaves of rebels and as a result when we went into towns we looked for good-looking young women because those were the ones we wanted to take and those were the ones who were worth the most in the slave markets and yeah there was lots of abuses um you know we just went into towns and there were houses with families there and we took the women and children and enslaved them and that wasn't really right but that was that was what people did in the war, and uh, you know we, we're just human. In, in wartime, people um, people do things like that. It's a remarkable moment of sort of tacit tacit admission of atrocity in the war, and I and uh, I've laid it out um, very briefly in in my book, and I hope somebody kind of picks up and sees how there's a sense in which everything that I've said um, in the book or everything that I've said in the last, uh, how long we've been talking, 45 minutes an hour, um, all can be made secondary to this simple one idea that here was a brutal war in which uh, tens or hundreds of thousands of indigenous women who really were girls, who were children, who were taken from their families, and then lived the rest of their lives um, as sex slaves, or as estate slaves, or domestic slaves, um, and that that was their their central experience. Um, and if we try to see this war in that way, and therefore Malinche also as one of those as one of those women. It changes the entire story. It makes it a very dark story. I would love somebody to make the the movie in which the movie about the conquest of Mexico in which that story is absolutely at the heart of it. Um, I, I I probably wouldn't be as popular as the one in which you know there's a there's a romance and Malinche is played by a fully adult famous hollywood star which is probably the way they're gonna go instead of making her a 12 year old um girl who's a victim of this kind of slave trafficking um but it would be more more accurate and i think more important
0: well professor Rustall, i have a surprise question for you uh that i usually ask most of my guests uh what can we expect from you next are you Going on vacation? Is there any uh, future projects uh, that you're currently researching or thinking about uh, that you can disclose at this time?
1: Well, having um, embarked upon a project that I, I think I described at the beginning of our conversation as being um, foolhardy and stupid on my part, um, <laughs> I decided, why not follow it up with another stupid one? So but what about the Maya? I've spent a lot of time in my in my professional career um, thinking about and studying the Maya and Maya civilization um, to the south. Uh, what was the experience of the Maya with Spanish invasion? Uh, how does that differ from the the, the Spanish Aztec war and that experience? And I realized. This, in a way, is completely the opposite, but equally stupid is something to tackle. Let me very briefly explain. It's the opposite because there is almost no literature on it. There was a pile of great studies of specific uh, Spanish attempts or successful or unsuccessful of conquering Maya communities and Maya kingdoms. But there are dozens and dozens of Maya kingdoms and polities. There's no empire Uh, So there's not a single study of the entire story uh, of Spaniards and Myers. Um, And partly that's because there is no traditional, there's no empire, there's no traditional narrative. There's no nice tidy story that only runs for several years. Uh, The full story runs for hundreds of years. Um, So in that sense it's completely the opposite and why is it equally stupid well at least with the conquest of mexico there was a well-known story that i could i could tackle i could wrestle to the ground and kind of argue against or, or pick apart um, if possible with this there is no there really is no comparable story so i have to figure out how i take something that is really messy and disparate and turn it into something that people will be able to pick up and enjoy following from from beginning to end. So that's what I'm trying to figure out right now is how I do a kind of a sequel, which is not when Montezuma met Cortez, but when the Maya met the, met the Spaniards and what happened then.
0: Well, I appreciate you being on the show today, Professor Restall. Um, I had a very, very, uh, uh, very, very uh, learning experience with your book. Um I hope you uh, think of us in the future. For Professor Restall, um as well as the entire New Books Network. This is Ryan Tripp on the Native American Studies channel. We'll see you next time.